The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good. Good to see you all. This is, this is fun. If we haven't met before, my name is Dan. I'm a pastor in training here with Citizens Church. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 1. I'll be getting there in just a minute. If you don't have one, there's a gift for you in the seat right in front of you. It is a Bible. Uh, and you can take that home with you if you'd like. If you've been tracking with us so far, and as you've seen in this video, we're right in the middle of a series walking through the Apostles' Creed. We're on the seventh week of this series. We'll be preaching scripture on the truths about God found and outlined throughout this creed that is about 2,000 years old. It's been held onto as a guide to our formation. It shapes what we believe and also is right what is right to believe about God. We're in the second section of this series as well. We're talking about the work of Jesus. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've covered his incarnation, that Jesus became man. We've talked about his substitution, that he took our place. We've also talked about his resurrection, that after he died, he returned. And today we're going to be looking at the ascension of Christ, specifically the line of the creed that says that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So let's stand together. We will read this creed as we have been over this series. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. Amen. You can remain standing as I pray. God, this, this time is yours. This morning is yours. I pray that as we are gathered together, that um, I may not be seen as somebody trying to convince anyone of anything, but this time with you is to point to what is true and who you are. I pray that you would use this time to just show how good it is that Jesus ascended to heaven and that he is currently ruling right now. I thank you and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may sit. All right, quick question for you all. Did anyone watch the coronation of King Charles this year? Couple of, <laughs> a couple of people. What's actually great is this works so well, whether you watched it or not. Um, so it doesn't depend on that. Uh, I, I did not watch it either, so I'm with all, most of you, except that guy. Uh, <laughs> not only did I not watch it, I have no idea about anything about the royal family at all. Uh, I can't tell you what they're doing, who they are, how they relate to one another. As I was preparing this, I was talking to my wife Cassandra about it, and she told me that a sibling or a spouse like didn't show up to this coronation, and it was like a big like, oh. Uh, and I I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know why people care about that. Uh, so then I started to read into it, and I was looking at the itinerary. 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., coronation day for King Charles. 13 hours of decorating him in white cloth, cloths, clothes, um, gold stuff that symbolized other things, and a really big lunch. It literally said on the itinerary, big lunch, go King Chuck. And so, and I was looking at all of that, I was like, I'm reflecting, I'm like, I don't know what any of this means, and more than that, I have no idea 
what he's doing now or like what this role change for him, what his daily routine might be. I'm curious if y'all have a sense of like, what is King Charles doing now? Or like, what is his active role as King looking like now? Uh, if you have answers to that, let's talk after. I'd love to learn more. Um, for all I know, he could be right now like playing croquet with the Queen of Hearts out in the courtyard or something. Uh, but the thing is, for me, looking at the coronation of King Charles, I realized like, not only is it meaningless to me, but I, I'm like doubtful and skeptical about what all it meant in the, in the, in the final place of all of that. And, and as I was wrestling around with that idea, I think that we can also view Jesus' ascension in that same way. It's, it's a point, it happened, we kind of move by it. We're not really sure exactly what the implications are or what Jesus is doing now after the ascension. But if you look at the ascension, it is a landmark event in the history of our faith. Here's how Acts 1 tells the story. 40 days after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's been teaching, he's been appearing to over 500 people, giving them instructions to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit and then take the gospel to the nations. And then here's what happens in, in Acts. And when he had said these things, he being Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus' ascension is the moment in history where Jesus went from being physically present with us to raised up as king in heaven, where he is currently reigning. And I don't think we really talk about that enough. As Christians, we talk a lot about his death and his resurrection. It's our bread and butter. It's our, it's our 101. It's our normal it's more like our bread and wine, I suppose. However, we also talk a lot about Jesus' second coming, that he will come again and there will be a judgment day. I think we're really familiar and comfortable with that. But not as often do we focus on what Jesus is actively doing now as he reigns in heaven. And so to do this, we're going to walk through a couple points in Hebrews. And this is what I want to do. My goal today is to show us that what Jesus is currently doing and then how that can grow our confidence as his people. We're going to do that through the book of Hebrews, like I said this morning. And also, here's what I want us to see. Right now, Jesus is ruling, Jesus is interceding, and Jesus is preparing a place for us. So in order to do that, let's go ahead and hop into Hebrews 1, verses 8 through 13. As you're pulling that up, these verses are at the end of the first chapter in Hebrews, in which the author is lifting up the name of Jesus. He's walking through Jesus' relationship with the Father, his relationship with creation, and the power that Jesus has. It's a really beautiful set of verses, so let's walk through this together. Starting at verse 8, but of the Son, he being the Father, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The author here proclaims, that Jesus is the Son of the Father, and that the Father is pleased in him. The angels will worship him, and that Jesus is blessed, righteous, and will live for eternity while his enemies are a footstool for his feet. 
And right now, as we're looking over those verses, I want us to zoom in on the phrase, sit at my right hand. I think that can use a little unpacking. When Jesus ascended, he went to heaven and specifically to the right hand of the Father. Now, just for clarification's sake, ascending to heaven doesn't mean that when Jesus went up into the clouds, he just kept going up and then was floating amongst the stars and the planets. It actually is referring to heaven as a, as a realm, a separate place. And this is showing that Jesus was lifted up and put on high. And not just raised up to heaven, but also raised up in power at the Father's right hand. And so in order to get a better picture of that, I want us to also just look at Matthew 20. Um, when the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, approached him, uh, she asked Jesus that he have her two sons sit at his right hand and his left in his kingdom. What she was asking was for Jesus to show them favor and honor and to give them authority in his kingdom. This position that's at the right hand is as good as being in the throne itself. It comes with the same authority and the same power. One pastor, Justin DeLahey, really helps us see the implications of this here. This will be up on the screen. The resurrection and ascension are distinct but inseparable movements in Christ's exaltation to the throne. Without the ascension, his kingship wouldn't be complete. Any more than a man could continue as king without a coronation. Christ conquered his demonic enemies on the cross, but it was in the ascension that he was exalted far above them. Jesus is currently in a seat of power. When Jesus ascended to heaven, it was his day of exaltation, where we can see Jesus reigning as king above his demonic enemies, the same enemies that we face today, Satan, sin, and death. And remember, I want to point out, my goal today is to show in scripture that we can have confidence as the people of Jesus. So the tension here is that we face accusations from Satan, we feel guilt and shame and sin, and the sting of sickness and death as well. Those things can draw us into doubt and skepticism about Jesus and his reign today, which is the opposite of confidence. But because Jesus is ruling, we know that he plans to have victory over every pang of sin and death that we face in this life. And he is working in us and through us to see that happen according to his will today, pointing towards his victory in all things that is to come. So in that, that also means that we can look forward to that future day today. We can always have that longing and expectation that it will come because he's good on his promises. But it is even displayed right now. It's not just a waiting game. In the words of Hebrews, we get to taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That is a gift that we get today. And when we know the goodness of the word of God and we are confident in his power, then we have the eyes to see what he's doing in the midst of this. So to give a couple examples, when we feel like we've lost the same fight against sin for the 10th or 20th time, we can be confident that Jesus is ruling and that will look like him working in us and through us so that we can fight and taste the goodness of sanctification and victory that Jesus will bring and supply. In the midst of our suffering and loss and doubt today, Jesus is still ruling, which means that even if we do not know all of the answers, Jesus can work in us a heart that glorifies God and proclaims that we can trust him even when his ways are not for us to know yet. Jesus is actively working for us today for a foretaste of the age to come where we can see the victories over sin and our sanctification and we can offer praise and glory to God more and more. Jesus is ruling so we can be confident that his plans are being accomplished. He's doing more than just ruling, too. 
I pointed to this earlier, Jesus is also interceding right now. So let's turn a couple of pages in Hebrews. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Here we'll see Jesus interceding. It starts like this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, that's his ascension, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The author of Hebrews here is referring back to the role of a high priest, and I want to make sure that we all have a good understanding of what he's getting at there. In the Old Testament, we see a line of high priests that would represent their people before God. They took on an important position where they would make a sacrifice of an animal within the temple to pay for the penalty of all of Israel's sin. This was outlined in the law passed down from Moses in a crucial part of Israel's relationship with God. And when the priest made the sacrifice, they didn't just enter the temple. They entered into a special room called the Holy of Holies that was separated from the temple by a veil. And behind that veil contained the very presence of God. And I want to be so clear on this. Uh, it was a mere human's job as a priest to walk into the actual presence of God, that, that they would be in the same space together. And I, to unpack that a little bit, there's a verse, 1 Timothy 6, that I think will really show what's going on there. He, God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of King and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. It was a priest's role to enter into the same room as God, that unapproachable. Their job was to approach the unapproachable. And in that, it was Terrifying. It had to be. You had to be thinking about that because to walk behind this veil, when you read about the book of Exodus, you see that one of the first, the first um, high priest named Aaron was instructed to wear bells so that if he went into the Holy of Holies and died, that everyone would know, hey, Aaron's not coming back. And the reason why he might die is because God cannot be in this presence of sin. And so there was a, a part of this, as you can read in Leviticus, where the priests would have to go through cleansing and make sacrifices, and even their clothes had to be like pristinely cleaned so that they could approach God without threat of death. The tension here, the fear, the anxiety of doing this, everything had to be exactly right. But verse 14 says, Jesus is the great high priest. He is without sin. He can actually ascend to heaven, which is in the presence of the Father, without fear at all. Jesus didn't need any bells. He was good. Like, there was no fear of, all right, he's going to go. What's going to happen? Like, he had confidence to go into the presence of God the Father. Not only is Jesus able to be in the presence of God, he also was the sacrifice for us that gave us the ability to do the same. He gave his life over as the final sacrifice needed, and he enters the presence of God, King of Kings, in unapproachable light, so that we can too. Uh, I want to get at this from another angle. Uh, it might help. If it doesn't, we can talk after. 
Before I worked at Citizens, I had a job um, in higher education at, at a university here in Charlotte. Uh, interviewing for that job was really uncomfortable and hard. I was moving to a new city. I'm used to in past jobs knowing a bunch of people, having some social capital, uh, kind of being familiar in that space. But it was a little bit more pressure on this one. Our move was already done. We bought a house. I'm looking for a job. My wife, Cassandra, already got a job at the university. And again, like I said, I didn't know anyone really. And then the day of my interview, uh, terrible, absolutely terrible allergy flare up. Um, like seriously, like I could barely breathe. My throat hurt so bad. I couldn't even talk that well. And uh, I felt super physically nauseous from all of it. Uh, I remember uh, at one point in the interview, I was just like, hey, I'm sorry, I can't talk. And they were like, you're fine, you're fine. Um, but one thing that happened about this is I remember logging into the interview. It was on Zoom. That tells you exactly when it was. Um, and the first thing my future boss said to me as I signed into this interview, looking at her face to face, and she said, hey, your wife's boss has told us a lot about you. And I'm really excited to meet you. And I was just like, yeah, cool, great, confidence. But not just confidence, I changed from feeling like I was working at this deficit and I had to do all of this stuff on my own. But it was like, man, this other person who barely knows me is in my corner and is speaking good things on my behalf. And so from that perspective, Jesus' intercession is not even like that because it's so much better. When Jesus intercedes on our behalf, he isn't just puffing us up and saying, look at the good work that you have done. He's approaching God the Father on our behalf with his qualifications, with his resume. And so from that, it's his sacrifice that he made that gives us the confidence to say, we're, we're treated like he is. Don't treat me like you would treat me. You get to treat me like you would treat Jesus. That's how he approaches the Father for us. He is a present source of confidence at our side now when we approach God, which means if Jesus does not have fear to be in the presence of the Father, then we have nothing to fear when we are in the presence of the Father. And it's even more beautiful than that. Not only do we have nothing to fear, but like I said, we can expect from the Father everything that the Father freely gives to Jesus because Jesus stands in our place. He gives us his qualifications. So we can be confident. That should grow our confidence in a couple ways. When you are doubtful in your prayers that the Father wants to listen or hear you, or if he's even in a space to care for you, Jesus is interceding. He's by your side, and the Father is just as willing to receive your prayers as he has the word of Jesus to him. If you're wondering if this time your sin was too much and you've pushed the limits of God's patience, Jesus is interceding for you and your sins are already forgiven. And if you're here today and you have not accepted Christ and all of this sounds like it's way too good to be true, one, I assure you it is, and it is true, and Jesus would delight to cover you in his sacrifice and his work on your behalf. He doesn't do that begrudgingly. He does that with delight so that you may know the Lord. Jesus knows you through and through, and he paid for your sins fully. And he's now advocating at your side that his work would be complete and covers you. So from that, Jesus is interceding so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And this will bring us to our last point this morning, which is that Jesus is preparing. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Let's turn to Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20 for our last part of what Jesus is doing now. Verse 19 starts here. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters to the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Before I get into what Jesus is preparing, I want to show you what it means that he has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Uh, when I was in college, I learned about this practice that occurred in the native lands of Canada, about 2000 BC, uh, that these Inuit tribes would do for their own safety. Um, they would construct these human-looking stone figures that had a head, little straight arms, and these two little legs. Uh, and they would build these out in the wilderness to mark a couple of different things. One was a good source of food, um, any form of like vegetation or good hunting grounds. Um, and then they would also use them to point people of their tribe away from dangerous trails and to show where the safe ones were. And in both of those examples, these, uh, these figures are called an inukshuk, if you've heard of them before. Uh, they all communicated the same thing. When, when you saw this, imagine that you were lost in the wilderness for a couple of days without food and you would stumble onto one of these things. It would immediately show you this. Someone has been here before, and here's where safety is. Here's where goodness is. Here's where you can follow to find your safety. It provided hope and direction to their people. And the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, like we just read, is saying that there is hope and sureness found in Jesus because he has gone as a forerunner before us on our behalf behind the curtain of the temple into the presence of the Father when he ascended to heaven. He went before us to show us that it is safe and okay because he went ahead. So that knowing that Jesus is our forerunner means we know that when he entered into the presence of the Father in the unapproachable light that we've been talking about, we can follow him and it's safe and it is good for us that Jesus went ahead. Uh, Jesus talks about it this way in John as well. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus was going first to lead the way to, and prepare a path. His ascension, his leaving us physically, is a sure promise that he will return. And in the meantime, he's creating a place, he's building a place and preparing it for us so that when he returns, he will bring us with him and we will be with God for eternity. So Jesus is preparing a place for us. We can be confident in our place with him forever. This is why the ascension is a landmark event in our history. It is not a day to be ignored or brushed past quickly, like I do with King Charles' coronation. The ascension actually gives us confidence as the people of God. And that confidence is an invitation to a practice I think that would be really good for us. Because if Jesus is ruling right now, currently victorious over Satan, sin, and death, and if Jesus is interceding for us now, going to the Father on our behalf, and if Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven, what is there left for us to do? What, what could we possibly add except the fact that we get to rest in the work that Jesus has already done and is doing now? I think, and I also think, as I've been just reflecting on that and thinking about us in the room, I don't think most of us here are skeptical about that happening right now. I don't think we're doubtful. I think we just don't rest in it. And I think we don't let that just speak over our life in the areas that we need it to. Uh, so for me, as I'm thinking about this, again, I'm not skeptical that one day I'm going to be with God forever. But on Monday night, I lay my head down on my pillow, and I'm thinking about how all my thoughts are consumed by a surprising $2,000 vet bill that we just got. And I'm just trying to plan that out and figure it out. And it feels crushing. And it feels like it's the most important thing about me that I need to figure out. Uh, in that same way, I do not doubt that I'm covered by Jesus's life and death. 
but I think that what everyone in this room is thinking about me actively right now is somehow more important than the way God is looking at me right now. But I'm sure everyone else in this room has similar bends and similar distractions and things that just seem to take up that weight. We should be able to let the ascension of Jesus not be crowded out by those other things. Now the but. <laughs> when we remember that Jesus is ruling, interceding, and preparing a place for us, every one of those things that takes up that space in our mind will fall into place. It'll be underneath the truth that Jesus is king. And so I want to invite you into that practice of resting after today. Rest in the work of Jesus shown through his ascension. Let the reality of his active work today draw you to belief and rest in him. I'm going to pray. The band can come up after as well. God, I, I thank you for your word in scripture that we can look at today. I thank you for the book of Hebrews and the author just drawing our attention to the realities that Jesus was a man who died, resurrected, and then ascended to heaven to be within the same space as you in a seat of honor and power and authority. And I thank you, Jesus, that your heart is to use that power and authority to rule for goodness here, that your victory over Satan, sin, and death is a continuous victory every day. I thank you that you are interceding for us, that you look at us and our inability and you provide us with your ability to save. That you care and love and seek after us and our weakness and it draws you into a deeper love, not a distance. And I thank you, Jesus, that you're preparing a place for us now, that your invitation is a sure promise that you will come back after your ascension that you have left to show us that there is safety and goodness in the presence of the Father. I pray that these truths that we see in your scripture speak over our lives this coming week and for the rest of our lives too as you grow and work in us in our sanctification and our relationship with you. God, with the, with the goodness, the foretaste of heaven that we can have today, speak over every pain of sin and Satan and sickness that we feel. Would your reality grow in our hearts a sureness and a confidence? Amen.